Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew. We are continuing in our fall series looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which was one of Jesus' most famous sermons, but Matthew records it in chapters 5 through 7, and so we're beginning chapter 6 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. I feel like I just want to say this as you're uh, looking, you know, opening your Bibles or turning on your phones to look at the text. There are weeks, and then there are weeks, and I don't know what this one's been like for you, for us and our family. It seems like it's been the latter. Um, we needed about, we needed to hire about three more full-time staff for our family. I needed at least four more full-time drivers, and it's supposed to get easier next week with Thanksgiving, but sometimes that's not always the case. Um, but I, it reminds me of how thankful I am for Sundays and the rest we get, whether uh, maybe that's not always physical for people, but certainly spiritual. And um, just feel like um, hopefully wherever you find yourself this morning that that this service is bringing that to you uh, amongst the busyness and craziness of life that it can be, and that uh, this offers a chance for us to stop and slow down and remember, um, remember where rest truly comes from. Before I read this text for us this morning, a um, couple of things just to note, I want you, want you to hear. Well, the first thing is more of a content issue. This text includes the Lord's Prayer. You'll notice that when I read this. And just for the sake of those who might have questions about it later, I'm not spending a lot of time on that this morning. And part, part of that is because we're going to actually spend nine weeks on that after Easter as we head into uh, our, our, our spring series. Um, and um, just to let you know, if you can wait We'll look at that specifically then, but that's just part of why I'm not spending a lot of attention on the prayer itself. Uh, second, though, as, we re- as I read this, I want you to keep this in mind. It, it helped me to understand that, especially, especially in Jesus' day, uh, this culture uh, that in which he was speaking was one where, where piety was very important. Piety was, was very important, and piety is, is, is just a word for um, righteous acts, giving to the poor, praying, fasting. Um, and piety is just that practice of those things. And this culture, that was really important, and it was also, you know, very much visible. And part of why this was helpful was that Jesus is speaking into a context where that had heavier weight, especially as how people perceived it and uh, as R.T. France notes, he says that um, people were easily conned by religious ostentation. Now, I don't think we're completely removed from that. I think there's a lot of that going on still. Um, people are, are persuaded by religious ostentation, certainly in the church, and even those who, who claim to be preaching the gospel but are more connected to a health and wealth gospel, and that um, drives people to this type of piety. But uh, at least for our ears this morning, um, know that that's a little bit of the context which Jesus is speaking. And as we try to unpack the text a little bit and also unpack our hearts as to where we need to hear this um, and how we need to hear it. So uh, with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in chapter 6 of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, 
in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit this morning as you promised to do. The very spirit that is living in believers right now. That you would continue the work of softening hearts and opening our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. That we would see you, that we would know you, and that we would be changed because of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after our family moved to Texas back in 2015, um, as parents, you're just sort of surviving for a good while of adjusting to a new place and getting stuff unpacked. And uh, we had four kids with us, so that was, there was that. Um, but there was this nice little, um, at the time I would say, this is certainly from Jesus, and that was the Tuesday ice cream truck that would ring. You would hear it way off in the distance. It would ring, and you would know what this was, and it was like, what a, what a, what a picture of just sweet Americana, right? Got the ice cream truck coming into the neighborhood, kids running up, getting their ice cream. What a wonderful thing. I wouldn't be saying that months down the road, but that's another story. Um, one thing I did notice, though, it was interesting, because I, you know, I would forget about this, but my kids wouldn't forget about it, and it was always on Tuesday, 
And it was always interesting to me that on Tuesdays, and without me realizing, our kids were so well-behaved. You asked them to do something. On Monday, it was, oh, just arguing and no. Tuesday, you know, and of course, I'm like, man, my prayers are really working. My kids are changing. Wednesday would show up and it would just be, you know, war again or something. I don't know. And, and then it dawned on me as it's dawning on you, Tuesday, well, there's something else in view here. And our kids are thinking perhaps about something that might come down the street later on. And they're viewing that wonderful truck and all of its marketing, uh, the colors and the pictures and how it just captures their imagination. And, and they're thinking, well, with my, my, with my gaze, with my eyes on that, I, I, better, I better shape up right now. And that's... That's what they did. There's, there's no real pun. There's no real surprise in this story. Everything that happened on a Tuesday had one thing in view and in mind, and that was the ice cream truck. Why do, we, why do I talk about this? Um, we're moving into a new section right now. Um, and Jesus, if, if, if we just review just briefly the past, um, he's asking, he went through talking about a righteousness that we need. And he, and he really, you know, if we want to summarize it, forced us to look at ourselves by looking at the law and looking at how we think we're uh, fulfilling the law and the righteousness that we're really not meeting up to and that it's not there. And that type of righteousness then drives us to this poverty of spirit, going back to the Beatitudes, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now he begins to shift our gaze outward and our doing and the things that we do. And he wants to talk about two things. He wants to talk about the manner in which we do things and the, and the, the motive. Just like the ice cream truck. Right? There's always something, there's always some reason why you're doing what you're doing. And as Christians, it's no different. And uh, as Christians, and certainly as we talk specifically about righteous acts, there is a manner in which you're doing that, which is to say that there is a way in which you're doing that. But there's also a motive behind that. There's a reason. And Jesus wants to get at that for his followers. What is that? Is it just to obtain something, some reward, right? Some ice cream? To which causes you for the moment to change your behavior, to change what you do? Or is there something bigger and better? And if there is, what is that? And that's the question I'm after. And that's what Jesus wants us to think about as we look at this text. So if you will, let's look at this in those two ways. The, the manner in which we practice righteousness according to Jesus and the motive in which we practice righteousness or the motive behind our practice. So the first one, the manner in which we practice righteousness, which is to say the way that we do these things, the way we live our faith out, the way we do even Christian things, um, the manner or the way Christians are called to practice or to live out acts of righteousness is uh, not before others, as we just read, but before what their father in heaven or this audience of one. It's, it's all about, this section is all about the audience of one. Look back at verse 1, which really is, is, is sort of a, a, the heading for the rest of, of those uh, 17 verses below it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. First, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say, um, do not practice righteousness before other people, right? The focus is what? It's on the manner first. The manner in which we practice our righteous deeds or the way in which it is done. And what does the text say that that manner should be? Well, back and go down to verse 4, it says it should be in secret. 
so that your giving in this example be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, do them in secret before our Father in heaven. This is the manner in which we practice our righteousness, according to Jesus. Not to be seen by others, but to do it, as it were, in secret. Let's define this righteousness there here, though. This is actually um, worth looking at for just a second. What does he mean by righteousness, the acts of righteousness? This term in verse 1 is the general term that we come across in Scripture for the word righteousness or justification, decalcine. Same term Jesus used back in 5-6 when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A little bit about this word, though, is that it can be used in a broad way, which Jesus is using it. And it has with it both the understanding of being and doing. Or if you're looking at me, being and doing. We'll go, we'll go that way with it. Being and doing. Um, Paul, just to kind of give an illustration, will flesh out the, the being part, right? how we're made right with God, uh, the, the justification component of it. Um, and James, for that matter, will flesh out more of the, the doing part of it. Um, Matthew's happy to kind of hold both of those together. Or I should say Jesus is happy to hold both of those together. Um, but how do we know? Well, the context tells us, and this is where context is helpful. Context helps us understand the use of that term. Just as the context in the previous section here forced us to know our hearts, our inner being, right? The, the, the reasons we do the things that we do in, in that sense to, to search ourselves uh, more or less. Uh, the context now, though not void of dealing with our heart, moves out to these three concrete practices that Jesus lists. It's the giving to the poor, it's the praying, and it's the fasting. And these were the three main practices of faith or piety back then. This is not an exhaustive list of piety or, 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 or righteous acts, but it's the three main ones. Actually, it's still that today for most world religions. Um, if you just add, actually, uh, re re reciting the creeds and the pilgrimage to Mecca, then that's the five pillars of Islam, those, those things. Um, that's, that's what the faith is bound up in. But all to say Jesus chooses these three practices is because they were, generally speaking, what people thought of when you thought of righteous deeds. And certainly in his day, this is what people would do to be seen so that they would be known as a righteous person. And what Jesus wants for his listeners is consider the manner, the manner or the way that they do these things, the way that you do these things, not to be seen, but to do them in secret, to do them for this audience of one. Right about the time that I, I was taking a job with RUF, um, there was this, it was a really interesting time, that's around 2008, where the ministry, which, which grew up in the southeast in Mississippi, um, was, was trying to, and doing a fairly successful job, but needing to pick up the pace a little bit, of getting out of the south, um, of, of getting to other campuses besides the University of Mississippi. Um, and so at this time, there was this uh, push to go to the Midwest. And I don't know if you know this about RUF, but you can't just go start an RUF because of its ecclesiology, its understanding of the church and who they are. There has to actually be a sending church. And just the way that we work, Baptists don't tend to want to send Presbyterians and fund them and all that stuff. That's another conversation. So it typically has to be a PCA church. Well, what if there's not a PCA church at the University of Wisconsin? I mean, we can't put an RUF there. We hold to our ecclesiology in that. We can't go tell kids, hey, you need to go to be part of the local church and not actually have a local church 
to point them to. Not to say that there aren't other local churches, but it's a, it's a pretty big deal, and it's actually a really, really cool thing. Well, what does this have to do with this? Well, if we're going to get RUFs to other campuses, the ministry was thinking, we have to get church planners to go to these places as well. And the thing was, is we had the church planners. M&A had them. We just didn't have the funds to raise, to go and send campus ministers to go plant these ministries with these church planners in these cities. Well, as I was getting involved, there was this huge push. And all of a sudden, literally over the course of two years, about 10 works were started all around the same time. In cities like Minneapolis, Iowa City, Lincoln, Nebraska, Indianapolis, Madison. And, and, and in some of these places we did have churches, but in other places you were seeing a, a church plant go to a spot and a campus minister starting the work as well. It was a really beautiful thing. And to be honest, it actually it worked really, really well. Ten years later, those churches are still there. Maybe that's 15 years later almost. Um, they're still there. They're still doing what they're doing. In fact, one of a, a student of ours, when we were doing campus ministry at Alabama, he graduated and he moves to Madison, Wisconsin uh, to take a job. And he's never lived there. He's never been there. And, you know, it, it was really nice to be able to say, well, hey, I, I know there's probably a lot of good churches there, but here's actually this PCA church that's right there. And it's also got an RUF serving the University of Wisconsin. Go check it out. Um, last year, uh, he called to tell me he's being installed as an elder of that church. So just a wonderful, wonderful story there of, of God's kingdom and how it's working. But what's the point? All of this happened, and this was sort of the running joke within RUF, because of this anonymous donor, this mysterious anonymous donor. Someone who forked over at first up to $5 million to get specifically church plants and RUF campus, campuses started in the Midwest. That would almost double by the time this was over. Now, I'm not saying God can't do what he doesn't, you know, he can do anything he wants to, but he was certainly using this to press this forward to say that, that, that this probably wasn't going to happen in the way that it happened unless there was this type of giving, unless there was this type of, of, of righteous act. And what kind of act was it? It was one done in secret. I'm, th I'm thinking about how I, I would feel, especially as I think about other institutions where you give half of that, you better believe my name is going on a building somewhere. And I'm sure there are people who, who know who this person was that would have to be, but to this day, we don't know who this is. And isn't that awesome, right? I don't want to speak too highly of this person, but is it enough just to do this for this audience of one, to do it in secret? Another friend of mine planted a church in Oakland, California, one of the most secular places in America. Um, they were, he sent out an email letter to those who were following. On like a Monday, we are being forced to leave our building. I want to say it was by the end of the week, but it was certainly by the next couple of weeks. Received another email that an anonymous giver had purchased this gorgeous, gorgeous um, church that had been vacant. Down the road, by the end of the month, they were moved in there doing worship. If you want to know what I covet, I covet million-dollar donors who buy gorgeous buildings for churches. Go to, it's called Resurrection Church, by the way. Go there after church and look at that website and look at the stained glass window in that church. It's pretty awesome. And then repent of your own coveting like I do. But the point is, 
He, he has no idea who did that. And I'm sure we all have stories like this, right? But he has no idea. It was literally done in secret, but it was, it was not secret for one. This is the manner in which we are called to practice righteousness. To do this for that audience of one. And that's what's in view here is Jesus gives these three examples of giving and praying and fasting in secret. And just briefly for this rest of this point, let's just flesh that out what he means in secret. Because there's a little bit of hyperbole here. You notice that when he, he goes and he talks about the giving, um, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, what's that? Well, he's actually literally saying, you know, forget about others, which is what the hypocrites are there for. They're, they're there uh, to perform their acts in front of a crowd. And we all maybe are familiar with the word hypocrite, but it's, it literally means it's, it's where, we, where we get the word actor. There's a, actors on the stage who put on a mask, and it was a multiple personality of, of portraying this person, and, and, but, but it, that wasn't really who they were behind that mask. And so while hypocrites were great for the stage, they're really bad for the church. But when Jesus is saying, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's not just saying, don't do this for those who are looking at you, right? the, the, the horizontal relationships, but also don't do it for yourself either, to feel good about yourself. As a matter of fact, do it in a way that you don't even know that you're doing it. That's what he means. That's what it means to do this in secret. Forget about yourself. He continues when he gets to prayer, verses 5 to 15. He says, don't pray as the hypocrites do, standing in the synagogues or in the streets in order to be seen. Instead, go into your private room and shut your door. Not necessarily saying that you need to go build a private prayer room. Although, not a bad idea, perhaps. What is he saying? He, he's actually saying, if, if the manner in which you're, you're approaching this is to do this in secret for this audience of one, then there should be no different experience for you whether you do it in public or whether you do it in private. And if this is causing you some, you know, temptation, then, then just pray in secret because guess what's still happening? Right? The purpose of that prayer, the purpose of, of prayer in general, the, the communion and the relationship with God is still there. That's what this is about. That's the kind of, of, of righteous acts that my people will be about. That's what my kingdom is about. It's not about a stage for you to go perform. It's about doing these things in secret. Next, uh, Jesus moves on to fasting in verses 16 to 18. And you could kind of lump in here, uh, you know, maybe uh, all of our, um, at this point, all of our, what we might call spiritual disciplines, but it could be reading scripture, having a quiet time today, um, something they wouldn't necessarily be doing back then. Um, but as we read this or read this, this too has a comedic edge to it, right? You see this person who shows up and they're just, you know, did, maybe they've, you know, intentionally got themselves to look worse than they really are. And they don't say anything, but the whole point is to, to get you to say, Ryan, are you feeling okay? Oh, I'm fine. Just fasting. I mean, we would all know if somebody, we went to lunch with somebody, where we, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that we can't talk about it, but it's, you get, what's the manner in which we're doing this? We're doing this so that people will see us. And so what does Jesus say? Basically, he just says, and this is great, be normal. Be normal. Comb your hair. Shower. Right? Put on your makeup or whatever it is you do. Put oil in your hair. Be normal. Why? Because the manner in which we do these things is in secret, it's for the audience of one, and as our heart uh, gets caught up with that, then we really move into this place where our left doesn't know what our right is doing. 
And this gets the, the one piece of application I want to give you here before we move on, which is, like, how do we do that? Right? And I'll probably say this again, but there, there's a little bit of a head game that goes on in this section. You know, man, my, my manner, I don't know if I trust it. My motives, I certainly don't trust it. So what am I supposed to do? Am I doing this for the right reasons? But for the manner at this point, how do we do this? And, and I really just want to offer this simple point of application, practice. What do you mean? It, it, it's, it's not not practice until you're perfect, which is something that we might say in our culture. It's practice until it becomes second nature. So there's a part of me that wants to say, look, forget about your motives for a second. Like we need to talk about that and forget about trying to do this perfectly. It's actually about posture than it is about perfection. And nothing does that better in, in, the, in the spiritual training, as it were, than practice, which really means that our objective is virtue here. And if we know anything about virtue, right, we know that virtue is not an act of doing good once. Virtue, rather, is doing good until it becomes almost impossible to not do good in any circumstance. It's why Pilate's trained over and over and over and over and over for crisis situations. So that when and if, and hopefully they don't, but when and if they do come, they know how to act. That's virtue. The circumstances don't change the way that we live. And so practice embeds that in us. And, and if we could go back through those three things, we can see how this would work, right? It's the practice of giving generously, not just once or twice, which is why when we talk about giving here, I'm not interested so much in an amount. I'm interested in your heart. Then I'm interested in an amount. Just kidding. Just making sure you're still with me. Just start giving a dollar today. Increase that. Like, work on you and understand the practice of what it means for you to give this away. So that 10, 20 years from now, giving is so built in to your spiritual DNA. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You just do it. It's praying so often that we really have a hard time distinguishing between our thoughts and our prayer. And I'll talk more about this after Easter. But it's saying my relationship with God is so enmeshed with my life, I'm not sure where I end and he begins. Certainly as it pertains to an active relationship with God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't continue to learn how to pray and what to pray and even ways to pray. I'm not asking you to be a robot in the same way that I would ask anybody who's in a relationship with me to be a robot. I want you to be in a relationship with me, whether that's friend or spouse same thing with our Father in heaven. How would you want to be related to? Lastly, fasting and any spiritual discipline you might practice, right? We could be reading our Bible, as we said, various acts of service, whatever it is. The goal is that they are practiced in a way that they become second nature to our lives. And, and in some ways, as, as, as we get older, I love asking older people what they think about worship and how that changes, and specifically Sunday worship. And the answer that I get repeatedly from those I ask who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s and have been in the church for 40, 50 years. I can't, I don't, I don't know what a week would be like without going to be with God's people. That's what, what, that's what Jesus is after. He's not we're, not, we're not going at this point, right, for the being part of righteousness. This is, this is now what it looks like to be in his kingdom, to go do these things, to look out and, and to go and, and observe the manner in which we, we live out our righteous acts which is to say the way that we do Christian things, that that word is uncomfortable for you. This is just the vernacular of their day. But this is what he's after. Some have said or 
found contradiction, and maybe you're thinking this at this point, and Jesus' words here where his words back in chapter 5 might contradict what he's saying here, where he said back in chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Now, I thought we were supposed to do this in secret. And I'll leave it to John Stott to clarify this. It is our human cowardice which made him say, him being Jesus, say, let your light shine before men. And it's our human vanity which made him tell us to beware of practicing our piety before men. A.B. Bruce sums it up well when he writes that we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Our good works must be public so that our light shines. Our religious devotions must be secret lest we boast about them. Certainly more to say about that, but we must move on. This is the manner in which we practice our righteousness according to Jesus. It's in secret, which is to say it's for this audience of one. Well, let's look at the motive now. Why do we do that? Why do we do you know, anything that, that, that we might do as a Christian? Um, if the manner of our righteous deeds is to be done in secret or for the audience of one, then the motive behind our acts of righteousness should be for that audience of one as well. That is, the motive for, the, for our works is not to be seen by others, but to please our Heavenly Father. Going back to verse 1 here, beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order that. Or sorry, in order. This is a phrase here you always want to pay attention to. In order to be seen by them. Don't practice this stuff in order to be seen by them. In fact, you could say practice this stuff in order to please your heavenly Father. The problem, again, is not being seen by others when we give or pray or fast or anything that we do. The problem in doing these things is so that we will be seen if that is our true motive. In other words, it is seeking a reward outside of pleasing the Father. And that reward can be horizontal praise, as we talked about, the applause and admiration that we might get. Um, Or maybe it's just feeling like I have this reputation in this place. That's horizontal But there's another kind. There's actually an internal type of reward that the hypocrite desires. And I I probably should have spent more time on this. The word hypocrite, it's it's got some fire today, right? Nobody likes to be called that. Those are fighting words. Um, And so, you know, I don't know how that word's coming across to you this morning. I think it's safe to say that all Christians at some level should understand that there's there's a part of hypocrisy in them. And be okay saying, I may not be a capital H hypocrite. Um, but I'm certainly doing things often that contradict what, it, what, what I believe, um, which is why Jesus gives us faith and repentance. But if that word is hard here, maybe that helps sort of soften it. Uh, if it's too soft, maybe it's worth hardening it a little bit. But um, I'll let Jesus do that work on your heart. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, the ex, there's, there's the horizontal, but there's the internal reward that, 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 that we can desire as well. And nobody sees that. Right? We might see you blasting your trumpet down the street as you're calling people uh, together before you give to the poor. And I've seen some of you do that, by the way. But no one will ever know how this really makes you feel and how that could actually be the reward that you're seeking. That's why this gets to another level. There's a point of this where I, I'm released, as it were, from, from trying to go around and, and, and just to go back to, to gather all the trumpets to keep people from making a scene. 
There's a place here that Jesus wants to, to, you to examine that nobody else knows but the Father. Which is your motives. Why you do what you do. So let this be a warning to us in many ways. At least a reminder of what's there. And why Jesus calls us to do these things, not for the horizontal, not for the internal, but what the vertical. And this is by contrast here. Jesus speaks of another reward. One, one the Father gives to those who, who do these things in a manner and a motive pleasing to him. I counted seven times the word reward is used here in verses 1 to 18. Briefly, what is that? Well, it, it's clear that there is a reward. You know, I get a lot of questions about this. Um, yeah, there's, there's something. Um, there, one of the things we could say about it is it, it, it's clear that it's not the reward that's it's going to be given here in this time or place. There's, there's real distinction between the hypocrite who receives his reward now in the present, and then you see also there the future tense, he will receive his reward. She will receive his reward. So we can clarify a little bit as far as what, what we're expecting here. This is not something that um, we're getting today. It's something that we will receive. At the same time, it's not conditional. You know, we don't do things to earn. Jesus doesn't say that. It just says that God grants things to people. But here's what I really want you to hear. I don't think we're asked to pay much attention to that. And I actually believe that part of what Jesus is calling us to and the way he's shaping our hearts through his gospel is that the reward itself is being in the presence of the Father. And if there's other things that go along with that, fine. But let me ask you this question, right? Do you really think we will want or you will want anything in the presence of the Father? Although all that he has is yours. And the answer is no, right? Which means for Jesus, the reward or motive behind those in his kingdom is pleasing and bringing glory to the Father. It is a vertical, not a horizontal or an internal, how it makes me feel, uh, type of reward. It's saying, I don't want the rewards of the Father. I don't want the things of the Father, what he can give me. Instead, I want him. That's our gaze. It's clear in this section that Jesus is putting an emphasis on the Father he uses that word 11 times in these 18 verses. And this is something we will talk more about, of course, when we look at this prayer. But I can imagine, um, as has been the case in my history and ministry, that when you are asked to think about God the Father, it is hard to do that without having been shaped by your earthly fathers. Good or bad. Friends that you know. And this is why we are always need to be reminded that part of coming to Scripture and part of letting it work on this is to deconstruct these, these, these warped understandings of, of, of things like a father and to have Scripture reconstruct them in the way and the image that they're supposed to be and the way that they truly are. And nowhere, should I say, does this shine brighter than when we look at Scripture and we look at the father, especially in a parable that I allude to often, which is the parable of the two sons, the parable of the prodigal son. And so wherever you are with that image of father for a second, just stay with me because this is important for, for, for where, we, where we go next with our motives. But what, let's just remember what that parable was. And, uh, you know, we, we think about the prodigal son. We think about the wayward son going off into the countryside, uh, taking the father's resources, um, wishing him dead, essentially, by leaving and asking for his inheritance. And we always come back to the point of restoration. We love that part. And we should. Right? That's part of our story. 
right? But there's so much here. There's so much more to it. What else happens, right? We, we, we talk about the father's reckless generosity, which is really what the, the story is about. He just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. It is reckless. That's what prodigal means. Recklessly spendthrift. He just gives and he gives and he gives to his people. We will say it in our liturgy at the table. A father who loves to give good gifts to his people. We talk about him running to the son. My image of my father, as great as it is, I don't have him running to me all the time. <laughs> Some of that's because he doesn't run. But even in your best images of your dad, your heavenly father runs to you because he can't get to you fast enough. Again, deconstructing, reconstructing what these images are. But how does this parable end with the father speaking with the older son, who actually is the hypocrite? That's, that's who this parable is about. It's about the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day. And what do we discover about this older son? We discover the manner in which he did his deeds, and we discover the motive in which he did these things. And none of it had to do with being with the Father except getting the things of the Father. As Tim Keller so thoughtfully put it in his book, Prodigal God, which I continue to recommend to you, it is the older son, the one who did everything right, who in the end doesn't want the Father, but only the things of the Father. And what is that? That's rewards. Saying, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. What is that? It's rewards. But when this son, won't even name him, when this son of yours came home, right, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, right, let's slander, let's undercut, your, you slaughter what? The fattened calf for him. But what does the father say next? And this is the point. Son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. You are always with me. Everything that I have is yours. What's the father saying to the older son? Do you want me? Or do you just want the things that I can give you? And I think especially as we come to the end here of motives, can you say that? Can you say that this morning? I don't want the rewards of the Father. I don't want the, 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 the mansion, right? I don't want all these things. I'm not going to say I would turn them away either. But what stands above that, I mean, miles above that, is I, I really desire to be in the presence of this one who says that he loves me this much. That I do want him. And as I struggle with that, as my doubts creep in, as I wrestle with that, it is this uh, sanctification process, right, of being made more into the likeness of Christ, which is our obedience. But what is that also? It's loving and obeying the Father. It's wanting to be in his presence, which Jesus wants to be in no greater place than in his presence, the presence of his Father. Can you say that this morning? 
And if you're wrestling with that, if you're wondering, how do I know that, I would just bring us back to the beginning. Where's your gaze? Where are your eyes as you discern the manner in which you do things, but maybe more importantly, the motive? And if you're wondering, okay, how do I continue to desire to be in the presence of the Father, whatever my history is, whatever my skepticism is, whatever the things I'm experiencing in life that seem to contradict that, how do I move closer to desiring to be in the presence of the Father? You, you look at the cross. You look at Jesus. That's your gaze. The cross is the manner and it is the motive of God's business. It is the way that he has gone about to do what? Secure his people to himself. And the cross is also the motive. It is the why. I will stop at nothing to have you. And friends, that's power. That's grace. To shape your manner. To shape the way that you go and do these righteous acts. The way that you go and serve and love people because you know that you're loved and have been served. It's power to shape our motives, why we do what we do, which is ultimately gratitude. But gratitude for what? For the love of the Father that he has for us in Christ. It's the cross that says, here's the measure of my love, and it's also what the greatest window into my heart of who I am and what I want, and that is you. A lot of times we can think that, well, God just sort of sent his son to go do his bidding. And there are religions that believe that. God didn't want to get dirty. He didn't want to suffer, so he sent his son to go do everything. Nothing could be further from the truth. At the same time, nothing could be closer to the pit of hell than that. The Father and the Son are one. When you see Jesus, as Jesus says, you see the Father, which means you understand who he is, what he's about, who he loves. You understand his manner and you understand his motive. The cross has the power to shape that in us. So where's your gaze this morning? May it not be horizontal, looking to the approval of those sitting next to you, looking to, for the approval of somebody else that you work with, whatever it is. May it not be internal. Don't fix your eyes here, that I may go do things, that I may live this life, show up on Sunday morning even, just to feel good about myself. There's just nothing but emptiness there. Instead, fix your gaze upon the Father, upon the cross that reminds you of his love. And that, friends, is the, is the power to shape our manner, to shape our motive as his people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we admit that this manner and motive business is tricky. It's hard to discern. Am I doing things for the right reason? And so I pray you give us peace in that. Not comfort or contentment, but, but peace and knowing that I'm sure there, there's a mixed bag there for all of us and the reasons we do things. But that's why you are gracious to give us repentance and faith to know those ways, to ask you to reveal those ways to us that we may more and more be conformed into the likeness of your Son, whose sole desire is to be in the presence of the Father. 
Would you do that for us? Would you remind us this is not something you're looking for as far as perfection is concerned, that we must not do anything unless our motives are pure? When could that ever be? That you would continue to grow us and change us by your grace. Such as the day that comes when we don't know what our right hand is doing from our left and the good works that the Father has given us to do because we long to please him, that audience of one. Grant that to us, your people, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.